Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vets First podcast pilot episode. I'm Dr. Levi Sowers, and my co-host Brandon Ray is here. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we're going to be exploring the topic of headaches and traumatic brain injury, otherwise known as TBI, and we'll, you'll hear it referred to as TBI throughout this podcast. For this particular topic, we're going to have three guests, two veterans and a researcher on the topic. Uh, the first guest will be Doug Lanfear. You'll hear him on today's episode. And then on the next episode, you'll hear an anonymous veteran who also has TBI, and then Dr. Andrew Russo, who is a leading researcher in the field of headaches and traumatic brain injury-induced headaches. So this particular topic hits pretty close to home for us as Brandon and I both study migraine research here at the University of Iowa and and at the VA. I'm specifically associated with the VA and work on TBI-associated headaches or what we call post-traumatic headache. And, you know, headache's an interesting topic um, in society because I think that there's a particular stigma that's attached to headaches. Uh, It's often referred to as an invisible disease, not unlike some mental health problems. People can't see that you have a headache. They often don't even believe that you have a headache. Uh, You know, hearing from patients that have headaches, there can be a real problem with with, um, getting people, and even doctors for that matter, to understand that these veterans have headaches, that they really are in a lot of pain and they seek treatment for these pain. And in fact, most uh, migraine patients go without proper treatment. Um, you know, even with, with new, the newest line of drugs, only 50% of people who receive these drugs, which are targeted to a peptide called CGRP, will even have a treatment or rec- will have treatment of their, their migraine symptoms. And so, you know, it's quite difficult for people that have headaches. There's a higher rate of post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans that have headache. There's uh, higher rates of suicide in veterans that have headache. So headache, you know, migraine headaches specifically is what we're talking about are more than just a headache. And um, Brandon, can you tell us a little bit about what, what a migraine actually is? Right. As, as Dr. Sauer stated, a migraine is more than just a headache, uh, in particular for people who don't experience migraines. Uh, migraine involves uh, unilateral pain, um, so pain on one side, sometimes located uh, behind the eye, as well as uh, light sensitivity or photophobia and sound sensitivity, uh, phonophobia, and is also accompanied by uh, nausea and or vomiting. Uh, and as well as the normally associated with pain with migraine, uh, this can be particularly invasive in everyday life where some people may only get migraine once in a rare while, while other uh, sufferers have migraine attacks uh, daily. So the people who only get migraine once in a while, maybe once or twice a month, or we call them episodic migrainers. And, um, you know, people who get it more than 15 days a month, we call them chronic migrainers. And what's interesting is that the difference between uh, migraine and post-traumatic headache, which we discussed a little bit ago, is is a uh, prior history of TBI or traumatic brain injury, uh, which are followed by headaches. And the headaches that come along with TBI actually 
they present just like migraine headaches. And if without the prior history of a TBI, oftentimes these people will just be diagnosed with migraine. So there seems to be underlying uh, connections between the two two disorders. And, you know, part of the research that we're doing here, the cutting edge research we're doing here at the VA is to understand um, brain areas that are involved with this type of disorder uh, and how can we treat those those particular these particular disorders with new drugs uh, and different types of methods that we're actively researching in, in my lab and others. And so, you know, in terms of, of veterans that suffer from migraine headaches, about 36% of veterans who have served a one-year deployment in Iraq or Afghanistan uh, will show signs of migraine uh, at some point in their life. Uh, in particular, veterans who have had uh, TBI uh, also experience higher rates of headaches uh, with a frequency as high as 63% uh, amongst uh, veterans who are exposed to multiple sources of trauma. And, you know, 33% of veterans uh, at a polytrauma center, uh, in, in according to one uh, British Journal of Pain study, uh, who had suffered a, a traumatic brain injury they often need to be referred to a neurologist for assessment for headaches, particularly uh, tension headaches, as well as migraine headaches. In 2011 alone, uh, about 56,300 veterans were diagnosed with migraine headaches, and these were predominantly uh, among women veterans, whereas even in the general population, migraine headaches affect women uh, more than two and a half times uh, the rate of men. And you know, despite, like, like we were discussing, despite these frequent diagnoses of migraine in, in veterans, they often have a stigma attached to them. Um, these migraine headaches can be quite debilitating and people don't understand this. Uh, even some doctors, and it'll, it's very difficult to, oftentimes for veterans to continue to work at the level they were used to. And in fact, veterans who have chronic daily headache are four to five times more likely to be discharged or, or military personnel are likely to be discharged. Um, with a medically related condition if they have headaches. And, you know, with rates as high as 20% of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom veterans experiencing traumatic brain injury, uh, this is a serious problem. Today our first guest is Doug Lamphere, and this is his story. We would like to warn listeners that the following content of this podcast may be triggering for some. If you are experiencing troubling and or suicidal thoughts, please call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 or text to 838-225. If you have hearing loss, call 1-800-799-4889 to be connected via text telephone. With that, I'd like to introduce Doug Lamphere. He is a veteran of Operation Desert Storm and served in the Air Force who suffered a traumatic brain injury and is here to tell us about his experiences with that and the care with the VA. And uh, today we're gonna to be talking to Doug about his TBI that he experienced in Operation Desert Storm and his uh, experiences with the TBI moving beyond his time in the service uh, into the VA system and how uh, he has struggled with uh, post-traumatic headache throughout his life. Welcome, Doug, and thank you for coming today. He comes from us to Iowa City from Memphis, Missouri, which is about a two-and-a-half-hour trip, I want to say. About, about two-and-a-half hours. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, Doug, welcome. Um, so the first question I have for you is is uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you joined the military. How did you end up serving in Iraq? 
Okay, my name is Doug Lanfear, originally from Oskaloosa, Iowa. Um, I joined uh, the Air Force uh, in uh, 29 June of 1981. Uh, I come from a, a family, a, a very large family. Uh, my dad had uh, seven brothers, seven sisters. All seven brothers were veterans, um, combat veterans from uh, World War II and uh, Korea. Um, so growing up with seven very patriotic veteran uncles, um, it was never a question of whether I would go into the service. It was a matter of which service would I go into. Um, I had always uh, had a fascination with airplanes and science and, and, and everything. So uh, going into the Air Force was kind of an extension of the Boy Scouts for me. Oh, yeah. So um, it's like the proverbial Norman Rockwell painting of the young Cub Scouts standing up on the chair. You know, I just really couldn't wait to get in. Um, so I joined uh, as soon as I could after I graduated from high school. Were you Were you 18 when you joined? I was 18 years yeah. old. Yeah, uh, I was 18 years old. And um, off to basic training I went. What, may I ask what year this was? 1981. 1981. 1981. I think unlike a lot of a lot of people, I think a lot of young people go in um, for the military, depending on which branch you go in, you'll offer a two-year active duty um, and then four years reserve. Um, the Air Force uh, offers a minimum of a four-year active duty commitment and two years reserve, irregardless of which branch you go into. Your military service obligation is six years. Mm -hmm. I mean, depends on how many years. So it didn't really matter to me because I went in knowing right away that I was going to probably stay for 20 years, that I was going to make it my career. Mm -hmm. At least that was my intention. So going forward, um, I had uh, joined in or joined without a specific job guarantee. Uh, it didn't really matter to me uh, what job I got. Uh, it was more of the thrill of being able to go into the Air Force. Um, I scored very, very high on the ASVAB, and uh, the ASVAB being the All Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. And um, based upon the needs of the Air Force at the time, uh, became a, uh, an intelligence uh, the term is uh, intelligence operations specialist. It's a very broad category, um, and you can do everything from be becoming an intelligence analyst, briefer, uh, target planning specialist, uh, etc. And up in, from 1981, when I completed training, uh, all the way through uh, my deployment. To, uh, to Kuwait uh, approximately eight days after uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, um, had been in that career field, uh, various different assignments, um, to include um, a six-year flying assignment at uh, Keesler Air Force Base on an EC-130 uh, Airborne Command Post. So, um, I guess with about 10 years 
in the Air Force and 10 years in my career field, I was considered to be one of the more experienced uh, individuals and was in fact the senior ranking NCO uh, of our organization. Um, our wing was an A-10 uh, Warthog wing. Um, the A-10s is specifically built for close air support of uh, Marines, uh, soldiers on the ground. By its very nature, the A-10 has to be relatively close to the enemy so that um, the airplane can do what they call multi-turns. In other words, take off, fly, expend its ordnance, return to base, and get refueled, rearmed, and then fly another mission. Um, and the way that happens is, is uh, the pilots never get out of the airplane. Um, they pull up to a series of different pit stops and um, they receive um, in one pit stop. Um, the pilot will be debriefed for intelligence observations and weapons expenditures and that is conducted by one of the members of my team. At the same time, um, as they're debriefing uh, with the intelligence people, their crew chief is going over their airplane looking for any type of weapons damage or anything else that they need to repair immediately. Keep in mind that the engines are running on this airplane, so it's not necessarily a real safe environment out there. Uh, it can, accidents can and did happen. Um, if the airplane is, didn't sustain major bomb damage or damage, um, then the pilot would get a, a new intel briefing. We would give them an update as to where threats were relative to the battle space, um, any reports of any other downed pilots and changes in procedures. Then the pilot, of course, would write this stuff down on his kneeboard and have an update brief. He would then taxi over to the next area, and the uh, they would literally load all kinds of weapons on it. I mean, so much weapons that the actual wings would start bowing on these things. Wow. And we would see it. Yeah, that's crazy. And then finally, um, they would go over and hit the last... Uh, pit stop, which was like a air, like the fuel, and they would only fuel the airplane half full because if they filled it f completely full, it would have too much for the airplane to take off. So a compromise was made to fill it half fuel and load more weapons uh, on there. And of course, once the airplane was airborne, then they could hit a tanker and fill up and uh -huh. everything else. Um, the pilots uh, generally would fly three, sometimes four sorties a day uh, on that. Um, so um, if you can imagine uh, one of your pilots doing that for six and a half weeks uh, on there, um, it could be a very stressful, and, and it was 24 hours a day uh, on there. Um, incredible stress on, uh, on our young uh, intel briefers and debriefers out there. Um, again, engines running. Nighttime, um, visibility isn't real good. 
in Saudi Arabia where sand is blowing and the sand is like uh, talcum powder. Um, you just suck it up. You drive on. You're at war. You do what you need to do. When, when my unit deployed, we had 80% of our authorized manpower. That meant that we were not fully combat ready to perform our mission. We were promised that by our main headquarters back in the United States that they would increase our, our manpower to its full 100 authorized strength by uh, filling in those gaps by activated reservist and national guardsmen, uh, what they call the individual ready to reserve, and that they would flow in. Um, we needed that manpower because my folks were working 16 to 18 hours a day and never had the opportunity to get a day off. They needed a day off just to recuperate on there. Um, we had some mental challenges uh, with that you know, when you work folks that much and all of the different stresses. Uh, keep in mind that um, we were unsure whether the Iraqis would employ um, biological and chemical <clears throat> weapons. So our folks are out here in rather warm temperatures and full chemical ensemble without, of course, the, the mask on. Mm -hmm. And alarms are going off all, all of the time. And we're trained to don your chemical mask and butyl hood uh, as a quick reaction. You assume that you're being uh, slimed with chemical and biological weapons and react uh, on that. And you remain uh, until given the all clear to do so. And sometimes that could be 15 minutes, sometimes it could be two hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a challenge. Um, so that was kind of the, the tempo that started. Um, we knew approximately two days before January 17th that uh, the war would begin uh, on and around the 17th of January. And from that point on, um, things became very focused. Um, we knew for certain that we were going to be going to war. Uh, the big thing was is when they issued SRP bromide tablets, which was the tablets, the nerve agent pre-treatment uh, pills uh, on there and instructions to start taking the nerve agent uh, pre-treatment tablets. Caused a lot of concern because uh, it was a medication that had not been approved or tested by the uh, Food and Drug Administration as well as the anthrax vaccinations. Um, but I complied. Um, I think almost everybody did. Um, although many may have considered it experimental, you're in the middle of a situation facing an enemy that has employed chemical weapons against an enemy before. He had the means, he had the capability, and he had the intent to do so. So we took every precaution. Whether that has anything to do with headaches or not, I don't know. It doesn't 
you know, maybe science will come and find an answer at some point in time in the future. But it's really immaterial. It would, to me, I saw it as a as a potential prophylactic, something that was better to take it than to not, in case we did get attacked with chemical weapons or biological weapons. Uh, and I think that was the general consensus of everybody, both enlisted and officer that I knew uh, on it. Well, we never questioned that. Um, anyway, we became very focused uh, on it. Um, and on, when you say on it, you mean the mission? On the mission. Yeah. Uh, the, mi the mission, we all knew, you know, at that point in time, we had been in the desert four to five months. And before the war even started. Even before the war started. Huh. Keep in mind that the A-10s were not supposed to deploy until after the war had started on there. General Schwarzkopf, as soon as the Iraqis invaded and had started moving massive amounts of armor in there, had made the unilateral decision that no, we need to protect the Saudi oil fields and change the whole deployment flow to move the A-10s first. And probably was probably the, best, the smartest decision he made because as soon as the Iraqis saw that the A-10s did deploy in theater, they thought twice about moving south. Uh, that and the fact that the Marines had also deployed uh, in, in there. Heaven forbid that they did because all we had was the, was the 30 millimeter ammunition that was in the A-10s and a few air-to-air -air missiles. We didn't have the, the, the ordnance that we needed to have done that. But it was meant to send a signal and it worked. Um, in time, in the buildup, in there. Um, it was one of the most largest buildup of ammunition that I think history would have ever seen. I mean, I remember seeing the C-5 cargo airplanes and the C-141s every day, you know, 20, 25 a day just offloading munitions, all for the A-10s, um, air-to-air missiles and everything else. And we knew at that point in time that we weren't there to just hold the line, you know. And we weren't there to just move Iraq out of Kuwait. We were there to destroy an army. You know, same time when they were telling the Americans back home that, you know, we're going to, you know, get Iraq out of Kuwait. It was quite a different story for us over in in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. We knew we knew from day one <laughs> what the mission was. It's gonna be a little bit more. Yeah. So what was your role in supporting the A ten specifically? My job was to um, was to work directly on the flight line supporting no less than eight debriefing, rebriefing intelligence teams. Again, we would have as many as eight to ten airplanes all coming in 
in, in for rearming, refueling, and then back out again. Every one of them had to give an, what they call a, a post-mission report. And essentially, what did the pilot see? What did he do? What ordinance did he expend? And all of that information, you know, was was all captured and sent out via message um, to U.S. CENTAF and U.S. CENTCOM. And all of the data went into their big war game, uh, war, war planning. How many munitions was expended went into the logistics side because then now they have to look at whether they need to go back to the states and order more. How many targets was destroyed so that the intelligence guys could go in and say, okay, we've destroyed this many tanks, so we knew that they started out with this much, they've destroyed this many, so now they're down to maybe, you know, 90% combat effective. So every sortie that flew had to be debriefed. Plus, a pilot is in a great position to observe a lot of things that a lot of other people aren't. They're at an altitude. They're, they're trained observers. They are great intelligence collectors. And in many cases, um, there were tremendous sightings. We had several pilots come back and report that Iraqis were, were trying to upload tanks on what they call HETs, or heavy equipment transporters, with absolutely no threats in the area. And had they had ordnance remaining, they would have been able to destroy 30 tanks with just one, you know, a flight of four A-10s. Well, you know, you get that information back, you can quickly turn it around and rebrief it to another flight. They can go out there and and pick those targets off, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in in most cases. So when I sit here as as an observer, of, of thinking about your story, I'm like, man, how did, how did, someone who's involved with intelligence that's working around planes get a brain injury, that that well, that, that has our base came under attack several times by um, the Iraqi Scud missiles, the surface to surface missiles, but it wasn't so much that. Again, I go back to the point where we were promised additional manpower. All additional manpower came into the Haran Air Base, which was about 20 miles to our east. We had we were responsible for picking up any manpower. I had finished my shift, and this was, I want to say, somewhere around the 23rd, 24th of February. I had finished my shift. We had one vehicle for 32 of us, okay? And that was to, you know, service all of our points along the flight line. I had to go and pick up two additional augmentees at Daharan. And I had traveled over there and was going to pick them up at the air terminal. And for whatever reason, they didn't make it. And I was on my way back to my base at King Fod International uh, Airfield, which was the main A-10 base. Um, but I had a kind of an urge to use the restroom. 
and you know BMs wasn't really much out there and just kind of pulled the car off to the side and was going to take a leak. And I was out there and all of a sudden you could hear the alarms going off um, from daughter on and as I'm starting to pull my butyl when I'm taking my butyl, my mask out and putting it on, that's when I must have gotten hit because a couple of the Patriot missiles from Baharan had been shot and had hit an incoming Scud missile that ultimately blew the missile up but didn't destroy the warhead. Mm-hmm. And that warhead landed on a, on a barracks that contained a lot of soldiers and it killed a bunch of soldiers. And a piece of that that warhead or a piece of that Scud missile had hit me in the head. I wasn't too far away. And you, you can really look at it and you can probably feel it. Oh, yeah. Okay. You see what there? It hit me in the head as I was pulling on my, my gas mask and my butyl hood. You have to take off your helmet to be able to put on your gas yeah. mask and your butyl hood. At that point in time, I'm out. Uh, I so don't you lost. Know. You lost consciousness. I, I lost complete consciousness. Um, I was later told. Um, my next recollection is is I'm I wake up in this area where I see what I assume to be military physicians and medical techs and chaplains going from person to person, which I later learn is a triage center. And they're going through and checking to see which ones they can save and which ones they can't. And I remember them checking me and essentially them telling, you know, making the determination that I was essentially brain dead. Um, you remember them saying this? I remember, faintly remember, oh. remembering this. And putting me off to the side where, where uh, one of the soldiers who had been very severely burned, really severely burned. And, you know, and I remember, you know, it's like, you know, I'm wanting to scream, you know, hey, I'm okay, you know, but, you know, the body's willing, but the voice isn't coming out. Um, Well, I didn't know how long that I'd been out, but in time, as time goes on, I'm starting to get a little bit better. I mean, my head hurts like hell on it, you know, I mean, there's still a little bit of blood and everything. I mean, I was kind of a bloody mess, but, you know, much to their surprise, when I get up, you know, I'm kind of, you know, moving around a little bit and I remember one of the med techs saying hey this guy's alive and they come over and stuff and they said boy you've taken a pretty good gash to your head you know how many fingers you know it's like I don't know I see you waving your hand and you know I said wow you know you know thank God it didn't penetrate your head and I said, well, where am I? And they said, well, you're kind of near a hospital. And I said, well, what happened? And they said, well, 
we think you got hit by a piece of, of uh, missile debris because we found some missile debris out there by your car and where you were at. And I said, well, what time is it? And there had been a period of about seven and a half hours had elapsed. And I, they said, well, we, they brought you in here, uh, an army, um, two soldiers had brought you in here about two and a half hours ago. So apparently I had been out at least five hours. Oh. At least five hours. And I was lucky because a couple of soldiers, I guess maybe MPs or something, had come across and seen this car out there, and it was kind of strange for them to see this car kind of parked out there. Check it and out. they check it out, and that's where they found me. And um, they immediately, you know, saw that there was, you know, some kind of injury, and had taken me to, you know, to this aid station or whatever it was on there. But it was, I mean, it was utter chaos. I mean, just flat out. And I remember, you know, this guy, he looked like he was an African-American. He wasn't. He was that burned. His skin was that charred. Oh, wow. And I remember reaching over to try to touch him and say, hey, are you okay? And him just screaming in pain and stuff. And he died later on. Um, but I felt so bad and stuff. And, I, you know, I just... You know, when I touched him, his skin just came off. And, you know, but they patched, you know, patched me up, put, you know, cleaned the, the wound and everything. And, you know, of course, they have my dog tags and they knew that I was Air Force and everything else. And um, got me patched up and then they, you know, had a driver take me back to my base and um, in the car. And they said, no, as soon as you get back to your base, you go to your own hospital to make sure you get checked in. You know, we've done this stuff, but we're overwhelmed on this one. We have to, we've got other other patients and stuff. And I did. So I went went over there and stuff. And at first, they didn't believe me. You know, they didn't believe me that, you know, that something had happened. And, you know, and gash in the head wasn't a well wasn't a well thing. and you know they they it was like well you know okay you know obviously you're going to be okay but well, here here's some motrin you know um, we'll put you on bed rest for 48 hours the same uh it played down the severity of the, of the yeah 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 well and you know and I think there. I think at that time there was a general lack of understanding about TBI right. and the severity yeah. of it. Well, you know, and they didn't even really mention, you know, TBI. Doc, I, I say this. I think that had they would have, I'm not even aware if they even had a CAT scan, an MRI, mm -hmm. or anything there. I mean, it was an air transportable hospital. It was meant to do surgery, you know. You know, for gunshot wounds and, and shrapnel and stuff like that, you know, anything that would have required something extensive, they would have air back to Launstuhl, Germany. Um, so I don't necessarily blame them on that. I think now they've got that capability to do those things yeah. in the combat zone. But, you know, 
the answer was was well here's some Motrin and we'll you know we'll you know put you on bed rest. Sir, we were already 80% manned. You know, my people hadn't had a day off. You know, three hours off in you know almost five weeks. How could I? How could I? even remotely think about taking some time off when we still had missions. You know, we had already lost three pilots, killed in action. And, you know, you're at war. You suck it up. You do what it is. You drive on. And we did. I did. Um, within 24 hours, I started bleeding from my eyes and my ears. This is 24 hours after you received and, the initial yeah. TBI. Oh yeah. So I went back to the hospital and I said, hey, I don't think something's right here and stuff. And they said, well, sometimes things like that happen. Um, but you'll be okay. You'll be okay. We just may have to extend your bed rest. And it's like, it's definitely not sir, sir, we don't have the manpower to be able to go to bed rest. So well, did, you, did you immediately go back to working then without the bed rest? No, I took I took three or four hours. My relief over there said, Doug, he says you need some rest. He says, I'll work a 24-hour shift. He says, I can work a 24-hour uh -huh. shift. And he did. And I got some extra bed rest. But by that time, he'd already worked. 48 hours without any rest himself. Um, the bottom line is, is we never did get any additional manpower uh, that we needed. So I went back as soon as I could. Um, we didn't know how much longer the war was going to last. As it, as it was, the war ended within a week. Um, and for that week, um, I continued to have blood from my eyes and, and from mostly my ears on it. Excruciating headaches. That but, started shortly after the, the bleeding from the ears and the eyes. So you, yeah, you know, so were you, they basically didn't diagnose you with a concussion or anything. Um, there wasn't really any diagnosis of yeah. anything done. Yeah, so. Was so, it? Was it more akin to your moving, your speaking, um, yeah, and there's others? Right, you, yeah, you know, you're not missing a leg or an right. arm, uh, or your eye isn't shut out, you know, shut yeah. out and stuff. And um, almost akin to you're a malingerer. malingerer. Oh, I got you. Okay. No. Um, and, you know, and I was like, no, not really. And I said, uh, you know, it, it hurts. You know, I said, you know, look, I mean, it's, you know, I've got a gash up here. And, you know, and it's like, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have been over in Dahran anyway. So when, when the headaches started, did they continue indefinitely? Um, or did they get better over time? Well, I mean, the headaches was, I mean, it was instantaneous I mean once that happened yeah. and they continued they gradually got better 
Hey, the war ended, you know, I mean, last part of February. Mm-hmm. Um, within a week afterwards, my unit deployed back home. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we had, once we got back home, we were given like 10 days of free time. And I just stayed stayed in bed, in a dark place in bed. And for the most part... Before this time, had you ever experienced what... You're pretty familiar with migraines now. Oh, yeah. yeah. So have you ever... Did you ever experience one of these headaches before? I was telling Brandon, uh, prior prior to this, never, had never had any type of headache, um, migraine. Uh, He mentioned cluster. Hell, I didn't even know what that was. With, with headaches, yeah. um, never any migraine headache uh, ever. Um, in fact, I can't even really remember any type of any bad headache prior to yeah. that. Um, but yes, I mean, in in time, it did seem like it would kind of subsist, or you know, kind of diminish. Yeah. And stuff, but. You know they would always come back okay they would come back and they would last you know three four days okay and, and they would you know and then i started would notice start noticing a pattern um, i would experience bouts of vertigo and ringing in my ears before i would start getting these these headaches and you know I didn't go, when I was on active duty, I didn't go to really go get treatment at it because shortly after Desert Storm, we went through, peace started breaking out all over the world. Mm-hmm. Okay? And Congress decided, well, with peace breaking out all over the world, we don't need a very big military. So they started drawing down. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, I already had 11 years. All I had to do is keep my nose clean. Yeah. Nine more years and, you know, 50% base pay for the rest of my life and health care and everything else. So, and, you know, it was pretty well known. Guys that were going to the doctor were ones that were getting separated. Okay. So I sucked it up to live with it. So how did, how did these headaches change your life? Did it, oh. did it did it mess up your daily routine? Did it? Yeah, I it did. It, it, Doc, it wasn't so much the headaches. I could deal, I dealt with the pain. It was the behavioral changes that came along with it. You know, prior to and during Desert Storm, I was at the top. I mean, I was well-respected. Um, my superiors had the utmost confidence in me. After, after this, and I didn't even notice it, my behavior had changed. Um, apparently, I'd become less depend, dependable and reliable. Uh, now I started to have somewhat of a stutter. Which, again, all of these things I was completely oblivious to. I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and one of my main jobs in garrison was to prevent, was to 
provide the weekly intelligence briefing to the wing commander. Um, I got taken that job got taken away from me uh, on it. Um, my efficiency reports started going downhill, um, and then the depression, uh, depression hit, uh, hit bad, um, to the point that I became suicidal. Mm. Um, and I put my my wife and my boys through hell uh, on it. Just a hair trigger um, temper. Yeah. Over just the stupidest little things you know, on that. Um, and I think that my wife at the time took it for as long as she could. We ultimately got divorced. Um, from that point on down, my main fight was to stay in the Air Force on it. Um, eventually, I got uh, a consultation to mental health, uh, and I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Yeah. We went through a litany of different uh, anti-depression medications, uh, Prozac, um, Paxil, uh, Effexor, Finally, uh, the one medication that worked at least the, the best out of them, but didn't take away all the symptoms, um, is uh, Zola. We started out at 100 milligrams. I'm at 150 milligrams and have been since 1993, okay? And even then, it takes away most, most. of the symptoms, not all. Yeah, you know, I think with, with any treatment that we take, I, I also take anti-anxiety medicines. Um, I was on Zoloft for a long time. And, um, you know, with anything that we do, I think in terms of treatment, pharmacological treatments, they tend to be not 100%. Every individual is very different, and I think, you know, you've done a very eloquent job of describing the issues that, that come along with this, the, the guilt and things like that that come along with depression and taking medicines. Doc, doc, let me put it this way. Even though I don't expect a 100% cure on any medication, boy, I tell you, life without the Zoloft versus with it yeah. is a hell of a difference. And, you know, I could kiss the guy who who discovered that medicine because it's made a hell of a difference in my life. Yeah. Um, I don't experience the low, low depression and everything else on it. Um, but like a lot of medications, it had side effects. And one side effect with me is it put on weight. And that's the big no-no in the Air Force. Um, once you put on weight and you exceed your maximum allowable weight, you're no longer eligible for promotion. You bust that weight twice, then they start processing you for discharge. Okay, You're no longer eligible for certain assignments. You're no longer eligible for career-enhancing 
education, and you become a pariah. Okay? Doesn't matter how good you were or are, okay, you don't fit the image anymore. And it doesn't matter whether the medication, you know, I had several psychiatrists, or four psychiatrists saying, yeah, there's studies that says this will put on weight. Yeah. Didn't matter. Because that program, weight management, is in the command channel, not in the medical channel. Okay. And by the time I hit 20, the one thing, though, was the medical the medical doctors had the had the authority to say we can keep him for 20 years because there's a, you know unresolved medical issues here mm -hmm. and they did so they were able to finish out the 20 years they kept me on so that I could retire at 20 years that's great okay so so when you retired you were then shuttled into the VA system yes um, in, in Washington, D.C., at the VA Medical Center. And when I did, I didn't see a psychiatrist for nine years because all of their available psychiatrists, Doc, were on duty at, at Walter Reed or on temporary duty at Walter Reed in Bethesda taking care of all of the wounded soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. They had one psychiatrist that was seeing patients. And that was well, in D.C.? So I waited seven, seven to nine years. And so do you receive your VA care through uh, St. Louis or through... Columbia. Columbia, okay, yep. So how long have you been retired from... from I was separated due to permanent disability by the Air Force on 3 June 2002. 2002. So since 2002, you've been in the VA system. And have your... You've had headaches now for over 20 years. Yes. Easily. Um, has anything helped you with your headaches to date? Well, we started working. I mean, you know... It, and I got to admit, the the VA has done the very best job that they that I I believe that they can do. Um, they really did started out with the Imatrex on there, which worked for a while. Mm -hmm. But it was like you know, eventually it just quit working. Okay. Um, then I got divorced. I'm going through a lot of this. My ex-wife goes and gets a lawyer and ends up taking every penny of my Air Force retirement. Every penny. Okay? So I'm living in the tent. And I'm picking up pop cans. to be able to get the gas money to come up from the point. But I get travel paid to do that, and I hope so. So what little bit of money that I do have, I spend going to take a shower at a truck stop, and you know, it's, 
it's amazing a little bit of money can buy a little bit of food. So one day I wake up and I say, you know, just fuck it. Fuck it. I just don't want it anymore. I'm tired of these headaches. I'm tired of this stuff. And I was supposed to have a dental appointment up here at the hospital. With the I call up and I tell them, well, I'm going to cancel my appointment. In fact, just cancel all of them. I just cancel all of them. And the lady on the line says, are you okay? And he says, well, I'll be okay here, you know, about a day or so. And she says, stay on the line. And she went and got some lady that was over there who was trained to talk to despondent veterans. And we talked for about three hours. And she probably saved my life. Because as I'm talking to her, there I'm loading my revolver. I'm loading my revolver. Yeah. I mean, I've got it all out. I've got the 45 bullets and everything. Yeah. Okay. You know, my head's just pounding. And I said, you know, well, you know, ex wife, she ain't going to have that. She ain't going to have my Air Force retirement for very long, okay? And I won't have these headaches anymore. So after talking for three hours, I decided, well, okay, I'll give her a chance. She called every day for the next, until... I no longer needed her yeah. to talk every day. And sometimes we just need someone, right? Yeah. And she says, Doug, she says, I'm going to see if I can get you a neurology appointment down in Columbia. And she did. And as soon as I got there, and she says, you haven't seen a psychiatrist in a long, long time. And I mean within three days, folks. I had a neurology and, and a psychiatrist appointment. And the neurologist changes the medication. It works. works for a while. Okay. And then slowly the headaches start coming back. This time... They're just as bad, if not worse. So now he wants to try Botox. Okay? And I tell him, Dr. Lacasey, no. Well, why? Well, number one, I had an aunt that had Botox, and she died. She had an adverse reaction. I had a sister that was using Botox for cosmetic purposes on her face. She had an adverse reaction and went into a coma. But she's out of it now. And I had a cousin that was having some type of Botox and adverse reaction, and she'll never walk again. So I think that there's a family history here that we probably not want to mess with. Oh, well, that's just, you know, it's a 50-50 shot. 
So no, I'm not quite ready to experiment. Then he continues to pressure. Let's do Botox. Let's do Botox. And it's a teaching hospital down there with the University of Missouri as well. Yeah. So then he gets his his student doctors to start exerting pressure. And he said, Dr. Lucchese, I love you to death. You've got a great bedside man, and I'm done. So I quit that. Yeah. So was the last is that the last time you've been to the VA for help? That other than my normal yearly checkup. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Botox was the big thing for a while um, in, in migraine medicine. And it's still routinely used in migraine medicine, actually. But but, but yeah, I can totally understand your, your fear of it if uh, um, you had a bunch of family reactions to it. That's I wouldn't want to do it either, yeah, personally. Yeah, the signs <laughs> do not point to us in that regard. You know, as an aviator, we're taught risk management. The benefit better be worth the risk. Yes, I think that the benefit could be at this point in time, but the odds here aren't real, real good here. Yeah. You know, we're, we're talking here, you know, very close, you know, very close relatives and a blood sister that didn't do didn't do real well so I don't so we're going to shift gears a little bit uh, we have a couple lighthearted, more lighthearted questions for you about uh, the VA and I think Brandon's going to ask those so. I was going to say thankfully you had that uh, that person on the line when you called in yeah was that person from the VA yes Yeah. Yes. it's, a, it's pretty amazing what makes it so worth it is people like that lady people like you mm -hmm. because people like you and that lady genuinely care yeah and I care I care enough that going through this this for me isn't about finding a cure for me it's about doing something for the guys coming down the road yeah. the next generation so that they won't have to go through a lot of the headaches. Anything I can do to help advance this, I mean anything, I'm in the, I'm in for it. I'll drive a thousand miles if I have to drive a thousand miles. I think Brandon's got a couple questions yeah, that, for you. That is su super, super encouraging. Uh, so building off of that, uh, so your thoughts on research and uh, what the VA is trying to provide research-wise to uh, provide treatments for these ailments. How do you think the VA is doing thus far in terms of outreach? I think that they're doing the very best that they can. The big thing is, is the publicity on there. If you want to really get the publicity on this one, don't necessarily rely on the VA as much as go to some of, make it a point to go and visit the troops, mm -hmm. okay, at the units, okay. Go to Fort Hood. Go to Fort Fort Campbell. Tell those general. Contact the 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 command sergeant majors and the senior enlisted at these guys. Tell them you want to talk to the troops. They'll listen to you. Okay, that's where you're going to make the connection. 
okay? Not, not through the, the, paid, the paid ads. Believe me, word of mouth is a lot more effective than a, than a video or anything else. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the goals of this podcast is just bridging that gap from research to... Yeah. Telling, yeah, telling your stories. You, that you know, I, I would even venture to say that the, you know, people like the DAV VFW would even pay for you guys to go down and visit those troops. Well, it's like, something, you know, as we begin this whole process, we're looking to expand this beyond just Iowa City. And, right. Um, we got to see where it goes. Um, and and you know, I can tell you that there is a lot of interest on yeah. the part of these troops up there. A lot of interest on the veterans. A lot of the veterans, a lot of them, especially the Vietnam veterans, mm -hmm. they're of, I don't know if they feel or they, they honestly feel that they've been lied to so much. There's a stigma that they're always going to have on their, but I, the veterans my age, I don't think that we have that so much on there. I think most veterans would rather be a part of the solution than, mm -hmm. than, than add, to, add to a problem. Uh, I, know, I know four of us, um, that's why four of us have already pledged uh, our, to donate our brains to the brain bank uh, upon our death. Um, yeah, it's pretty. And you know, we want we want that because it's you know we're not going to do it. It's not going to get any better unless science has something to work with. Right. Yeah, that's a great. For it's a cause. It's pretty neat. Well, that is still just processing everything. That's amazing, though. That it's it's amazing to hear that there's that much interest. Sometimes there can be a stigma with research, especially with um, the limited access that uh, like troops, veterans, even uh, the public can get to it. So, so just keep, keep in mind that troops my age grew up with science. Mm -hmm. You know, to them, I mean, you know, video games and everything else is, you know, they grew up with computers. They're comfortable with it. They're comfortable with science. Yep. Yeah, and you know that's 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 one thing that we're really trying to do is just just to better get this information out there for people that we're working on. Um, you know, I found out about this program by simply logging on to the VA VA Current News. <laughs> yeah. You know, I read yeah, yeah, you read an article. I read, I read the VA, article so. and it's like, hey, you know, my my wife, she's a retired nurse. Yeah. Say, hey, Kathy, look at this. They're doing a research thing up in Iowa City. You know, yeah. and you know she read it. She says, "Boy, you ought to contact us." Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and then he sent me an email, and then I called him, oh, and we that. we talked. That's how we ended up contacting each other. It's happened. So it was pretty cool. Um, well, Doug, I'd like to thank you for coming today, and thank you all for listening. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.